Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Welcome back to the pod shop. Been a crazy few weeks, boss man. We are holed up together. You haven't allowed me to speak to another human being in almost a couple weeks now. We are in full quarantine. Yeah. And I'm taking bets on who's going to break. We were quarantined before quarantine was cool. Are you going to go off the reservation first? Or my, what, I'm, what is I'm not going to get voted off of this island first. That it might not be my, a vote. That's my private mini goal. <laughs> At some point, one of us is going to have to get close to another human being. Yeah. And uh, at that point, you're going to get voted off. Well, I'm living in your backyard, boss man. It's been lovely in that small way, but it's been a crazy, crazy world out there. Absolutely unprecedented in our lifetime. Today's episode is about nothing other than something that has come to dominate our lives on a daily basis in these times. It's the coronavirus. And today, we're going to speak with one of our favorite regular guests here on the pod, someone who I read on Twitter all the time and who has been so prescient about coronavirus and its downstream effects. My name is Taylor Pearson, and I tweet. (laughs) You do really tweet a lot. Primarily. Why? I love Twitter. Why do I love Twitter? Like, there's no reason to be on Twitter except to, like, try and learn stuff right like there's nothing visually appealing about it like the only dopamine receptor is like i'm trying to get smarter and signal to everyone else that i'm getting smarter which is like what i do on twitter right (laughs) boss man me and you are going to zoom back at the end of this wonderful conversation to give our insights and some reactions i think you're really going to enjoy this one i also got to say if you want to hear insights and hot takes from the boss man and myself go to youtubes.com search for tropical mba our channel We'll link, of course, to it in the show notes. We're doing a daily podcast from my shop, 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, every day. We're two days in, so when I say every day, I mean two days. We're doing it so far as I'm locked down with you. The moment I can get the heck out (laughs) of here. It's going to end, I'm sure. (laughs) Look, here's the reason we invited Taylor onto the show. He's a regular host, one of the smartest people we know, and he is literally, he has the time to dig into coronavirus, its effects, but especially its, its historical precedents, things like where are we at with the stock market versus where were we at historically, things like what might be some likely things that you know are going to affect our small businesses. But also, if Taylor's ahead of the curve buying masks back in January, we can learn from his process of thinking about this material, how we might better process information and apply it in our business. And I got to give full transparency caveat to this one because I was speaking with Taylor to just today and this interview was recorded on March 17th so almost 10 days ago so depending on when you're listening this is an absolute lifetime and I really wanted to underline that some of Taylor's thinking has evolved since then of course like everybody's so I really asked Taylor like I know this is a tough position to put you in man but I just want you to share your genuine thoughts so take it in the spirit that it's meant this is just an, a motivated individual sharing his thoughts about our current situation. Ian, just a brief read from something you know Taylor and I were speaking about today. He said, just to be explicit 
about my concern. I fear there is a lot more fear now than even a week ago. And I'm concerned that 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 is going to get used by governments to push through things that would otherwise be untenable. Taylor's just outlined that he's just cautious about all this stuff. He's a thoughtful, concerned guy. So anyway, as usual, this is caveat. These are interested small business owners talking about how to improve our businesses. Ready to roll this thing, boss man? Let's do it. All right. So let's roll the interview, which I say was recorded on the 17th of March, and we'll circle back at the end of the talk. I just love to hear about like when you first heard about coronavirus and why you cared about it. The first time I think I heard about it was in a chat group that I was in probably mid to late January. My first documented coronavirus action is on January 25th. I ordered two P100 respirators <laughs> off of Amazon. So by, by January 25th, I had progressed to the point where I was going to go drop $100 on Amazon to buy some respirators. And so it's probably like a week or 10 days before that, that I like first heard about it or started paying attention to it. I think, you know, like at a high level, it's been a while since we've done an episode, but our, I think our running joke was that the Taleb timer or something to that effect, or, you know, how long into an episode do we mention Nassim Taleb? So I, I can go ahead and break the seal. So Nassim Taleb, uh, he was a, a hedge fund manager. And I think it still is to some extent, but he's most popular. He wrote three books. I guess he's four books now. Uh, Full by Randomness, Black Swan, Anti-Fragile, all kind of talking about unlikely events and how they impact the course of history and sort of how to, to prepare yourself against them and how complex systems work. And so one of the big lessons from his work that kind of got me interested in the whole coronavirus situation was when you have a, a small probability of a very bad thing happening or, or a very good thing happen, you have a small probability of a very high magnitude event. Human intuition just doesn't pay enough attention to that, that we tend to downplay those things. They go, oh, it's like really unlikely that something will happen. But in fact, if you kind of look at the, the narrative line of history, it's just, you know, it's mostly, you know, highly impactful, but unexpected events. And so if you want to kind of be ahead to some extent or, or be well positioned, you have to put yourself in a, you know, quote unquote, anti-fragile situation, something where you can benefit from those, you know, unexpected periods of high volatility. By the way, it's not surprising to me, I just want to insert my little trope here, that people who study, you know, viral marketing on the internet are particularly well suited to understand what's happening here. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I, Tyler Cowen, who's an economist at, at George Mason University, he writes a column on Bloomberg, and he kind of had this thing that there's kind of, there were these two camps. This was maybe like early March in terms of how people were responding to the coronavirus. And one camp was people that came from some field that dealt with fat-tailed events or black swan events, where you have small probability, high magnitude outcomes that kind of determine how the field goes. So, you know, venture capital and startups finance people that live through through 2008 or invest in companies and you know one company does 100 times better than another company i think there was something about people and i guess that was what i noticed it was people primarily sort of like finance or tech background people that seemed to like clue you know at least in sort of my circle that seemed to like get on this train faster at least there, there was some pattern matching they could do like oh I, I see how this works like this thing is doubling every four days and so even though it's only, you know, a couple thousand cases outside of China right now, like it's not that hard to draw the line to where this is, you know, millions of people. 
it's tricky because most of the time the it's going to blow over crowd is right. Let's just say 98, 99% of the time, like they're correct and like everything's overblown and this is not a big deal. And I guess the analogy I use that I, I borrow from the scene to lab is it's, you know, it's to some extent, it's sort of like playing Russian roulette, right? Most of the times when you point the gun at your head and pull the trigger, the chamber's empty and nothing happens. But if you keep doing that over and over, eventually you're going to be wrong and the consequences are, are significant. So I think you have to, that idea always made sense to me or has made sense to me for, for quite some time. And so, you know, when I was looking at this, yeah, as I, mean, I was starting to buy all the stuff on Amazon and we had these, you know, boxes and food piling up in our kitchen and my wife is looking at me like I'm, you know, out of my mind. I'm like, yeah, I know it's probably not going to happen, <laughs> but like, you know, I'm going to spend a few hundred bucks and just like put some crap in here just in case something happens. I know it's early days in terms of this sort of analysis, but in our professional lives in America, and I think for a lot of other parts of the world that are, you know, our listenership comes from, this is really the first event that echoes at any kind of scale what the Black Swan was talking about, what Antifragile was talking about, at least from an industry or societal level. I was in college in 2008. And so I, I remember reading the newspaper and I remember sort of like, you know, I didn't know a lot about finance, but I was really interested and I was trying to figure out what was going on and I was kind of orienting around it. And whereas this time it's, it's been much more real for me in the sense of, you know, I don't know, my parents are older and, and I worry about them. Um, you know, I have lots of friends that are small business owners or work at startups and like, what does this mean for them? Like, what is the economy going to look like over the next 12 months? You know, what is that, that going to happen? So I think there's just, there's just a, a realness factor there of like, what the actual impact of that kind of like volatility is. I've thought about this stuff for, for quite some time. And traffic is, is a big, you know, a huge portion of how I kind of see the world. I think, you know, Taleb's lens is probably sort of the most, the most dominant lens and kind of how I think about things. And I think I've been thinking about what this could happen and how this would look for a long time. I saw there was someone, a financial person that was kind of tweeting something maybe a week ago saying like, oh, I never thought I'd see like a more volatile event in my life than 2008. And I was like, huh, that's so interesting because I always assumed I would see something much more volatile than that. And then to kind of see that that start to play out was, in some extent, I think I, I, I doubled down on it because I, I started to kind of trust my intuitions about how this was going to happen more because they go, oh, yes, like that, you know, to some extent, I felt like I had some predictive power. I was like, I, I see kind of how this is going to going to roll out. And as those predictions sort of proved at least somewhat right, I was like, huh, like, I think, I think I'm onto something here. And I wonder, will this define our generation in an interesting way? Will we distrust systems or trust, decide to trust systems differently? Will we be remembered by our, you know, our children, grandchildren as sort of the generation that is obsessed with Purell and is always like cleaning their hands after dinner in a strange and awkward way at family gatherings? I'm wondering if maybe Taleb's ideas will be received differently now. That's interesting. I guess there's a lot of systemic issues, aren't there? Because I think like even after 2008, I would have guessed a lot of people have been like, oh, like now. Because I, mean, I think he, his timing was very good in the sense. I think the Black Swan came out in 2007, like the beginning of 2007 or something. And then kind of the meltdown started in late 2007. And so, I mean, he looked very prescient and that you know, was very prescient to a large extent, but it doesn't seem to have like materially 
you know, at least at the policy level or the systemic level made a lot of impact. Though I do think at the, the individual level, like, you know, now compared to 2007, the number of people that understand this stuff and, and think in this terms is, is much higher. So I do think kind of the, the penetration of those ideas has increased. And yeah, I would think will increase, you know, after this to, to some extent. It's difficult because it seems like a lot of belief systems, they lean towards legibility and like positive content versus via negativa. So even though I'm this big believer in Taleb's sort of framework for understanding the system, our financial system, for example, I don't have like clear bets against the system. I'm really glad that I didn't take standard investment advice. I'm really glad I have a cash bias, which by the way, I'm now I'm even a little bit worried about that. Something we can get to. So it's it's not even like it's this big win because there's nothing one clear thing to do once you believe it. And I think that that's the problem for so many people is they want something that's clear. Yeah, it's a thing that sucks to be right about. I'm not like happy that I was. You know what I mean? Like you want to be wrong about these things, and you want. Yeah. And I think that again, like you know, going back the systemic risk kind of thing, like. If you're overly worried about these things, then you take appropriate precautions and they don't play out, right? You know, if the earlier and more aggressive governments took action with coronavirus, you know, the more effective it was. I think like Singapore has had like super, they're monitoring everything. You have to take your temperature anytime you walk into any store. If it's, you know, above whatever, they have to report you to a fever clinic immediately. They talk to you, they interview you, they know everyone you've talked to for the last 17 days, they do contact tracing, they go back, right? So, you know, the situation in Singapore is never really deteriorated. And, you know, if they keep doing that, probably won't. Whereas a lot of the rest of the world was much slower to react. And I think really, it's, it seems like when things, to some extent, you know, hit home in the US and Seattle and San Francisco and New York sort of worsening. And then I think, I think for people in the West in general, kind of seeing Italy, it felt like it was more real. There's something about like being in China that was like over there. I was kind of almost thinking like World War II analogies, like China was almost like the the Anschluss or the appeasement where it was, you know, something that was happening over there and would kind of blow over and, you know, we didn't have to pay attention to it. Yeah. Um, and really like that was, you know, just as in World War II, like that was the time to act, right? That was when the quote unquote enemy was kind of weak and you could, you could have defeated it. And, you know, if, if everyone had acted really aggressively in January, like we wouldn't be having this conversation and it would have seemed like, you know, I was overly paranoid and, and kind of yelling around. So there's a, there's a weird dynamic there in terms of just how to talk about it and how it's perceived. Let's then move on to the historical context. And I think it's worth like just having a little caveat here. Like, I don't think anybody expects people to be right about this stuff. Like we're just trying to be interesting and, and figure it out and discuss what we're fascinated by about this. And it's okay to shoot from the hip a little bit here, you know? We're not trying to make recommendations or whatever. But, you know, you mentioned World War II, Taylor, and when all this kind of came out, I just gravitated right back to my World War II favorite books. And there was something about this when the first sort of major news media picked up on it in America in terms of the home front. No one was really talking about the economy yet. They were talking about like stock market and health stuff. And my thought was, this is easily the worst recession of my entire lifetime, and it could be a two-generational thing. What do you think about the historical context of what's just transpired so far? It's interesting. I guess I was looking, I was playing around, you know, I've seen various people have built kind of various models for the 
you know, if you take interventions at different times and what the effect of those interventions is. And I think like the most interesting thing to me with those is just how wide the dispersion is. So like, you know, I saw someone that built a model for kind of the U.S. between, you know, super early, super aggressive containment and preventative measures and, and kind of much more lax. And kind of the best case scenario was like maybe 10 or 15,000 deaths, which would be, you know, much less than the flu and would kind of, you know, make everything look overblown. And, and then the worst case scenario was like well into the millions, you know, so like, you know, what is that? Two orders of magnitude, more than two orders of magnitude higher. And I think, and I guess that's in terms of like how my thinking about how all this in terms of like historical context is like, it, it does feel like there's just this huge dispersion in outcomes. I was watching, there's a good documentary, I think from the 90s about Paul Tudor Jones, who was kind of a famous trader that made a lot of money in the uh, 1987 flash crash. And he was like, oh, this is going to be the beginning of a huge recession and everything's going to like fall apart. And the market bounced back in 18 months and kept going. And then, you know, you can, I can tell the exact same story of, you know, the Great Depression when, you know, like things were down 20% and everyone's like, oh, it's all going to bounce back and this is no big deal. And the stock market and the economy didn't really recover until, you know, the 1940s and in the Second World War. So I think there's, there's a really, huge, you know, in my mind, at least the, the historical analogy, the dispersion between the possibilities. And I think, you know, what we're seeing in, in the stock market to some extent is just very high levels of volatility. And, you know, what volatility in the stock market means is everyone just kind of throwing up their hands and saying, I don't know what to do. Well, let's talk about maybe some ways in which this is different than what's preceded it. One of the things you mentioned is like, this is the fastest move down in U.S. stocks ever. What does that mean? As we're recording this, it's uh, after the market closed on Tuesday, March 17th. I think the S&P rallied about 4% today, but um, I think is down 25, 29%, like high 20% kind of since the end of February. And so to be down 25% in you know, roughly three weeks, that's just the fastest 25% drop in the history of U.S. markets. And like by a pretty significant margin, the U.S. The flash crash in 87, I think it was like 18 point something percent in a day. But I think just, you know, talking to, to finance people and traders and kind of stuff on Twitter, just the, the sharpness of the move. is just like really kind of unprecedented. Like no one's no one has seen things react that aggressively. And I think people are still kind of trying to figure out why exactly that is. Is there there's something underlying? I mean, I think there's a lot of leverage in the system, so to speak. You know, there's there's players that have lots of leverage. And so and I think part of what the volatility has seen is we've seen some big firms that were highly leveraged basically blow up and have to unwind their positions, which has led to to the massive selling. One thing that is the most unthinkable thing, I think. And I, I just want to toss it your direction and see what you make of it. When you look back to, you know, kind of the context all starts here at maybe like the Spanish flu in 1918 and then depression, World War II. In that context, I don't hear a lot of people talk about the possibility of America's game, America's dollar, America's stock market, perhaps not being the most important game anymore. People were willing to talk about almost everything, but I rarely hear people face the possibility that America itself might need the bailout and America itself might be the problem. And 
Why don't people talk about that? I tweeted something a few days ago around like, I wonder, can you just look at kind of how the Asian countries responded to this as opposed to the Western countries, Europe and North America, like the Asian countries just handled it. It's, at least so far, they seem to have, have handled it much better, you know, and is that, is that a herald of, of some sort of greater shift in how, you know, political power is wielded or, or what that looks like? And, you know, I don't know. Part of that's just like more simply explained by they had SARS and so they had some like infrastructure and a culture in place where I think, you know, a month ago I was talking to a friend that worked at a hospital and people were making fun of nurses wearing masks. In Hong Kong, like as soon as this thing broke out in Wuhan, you know, everyone in Hong Kong was wearing a mask and not touching each other. And Totally. Across all of Asia. You go to a, an average airport in a random Asian city and more than half the people will be wearing masks. But I do think, you know, I, I, had an, I published an article that came out mid to late February kind of talking about, at least from an investment perspective or stock perspective in particular, I think what what's kind of like broadly not realized is the period from 1984 to 2019 in the U.S. stock market was the greatest bull market of any stock market in the history of the world ever. And if you talk to most people, you know, in terms of like investment expectations and, you know, I know you've talked to the you know, fire, financial independence, retire early crowd and kind of the vanguard buy and hold and, and this kind of things. I think a lot of the way people think about investments in the stock market is based on this, you know, pretty much everyone alive today, you know, even if, you know, someone in their 70s or 80s for their investing lifetime, you know, maybe they started investing in in the late 70s, they've been in you know the largest bull market in any country anywhere in the world. And so I think to to make the assumption that the next 40 years will look like the last 40 years, that's like a pretty big assumption. It's not even an assumption though, because it goes a step further, which is it feels as if, Taylor, that not only is every individual invested in that bull market and its characteristics up and to the right, but that the whole country itself is predicated on that very idea. And that's why there's so much leverage in our particular economy, because we get the cash, we get the funding. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the U.S. is in a very privileged position in the sense that when bad things happen all over the world, what most people want to hold is, is U.S. dollars. And so that gives, that gives the U.S. government options in terms of, of monetary and fiscal policy and what they can do to stimulate the economy in the event of a recession that no country has to the same extent. And, and you know, very few countries have even anything kind of remotely comparable. And, you know, at some point, you know, between now and a thousand years from now, at some point that will that will break down. Well, that's what's so interesting. I've had like these very simple realizations the past few weeks and like just kind of figuring out where my mind's going to land on this stuff. And the first realization I had was just like looking at all the actualities on the ground and, you know, people making calls about where the stock market's at and stuff. To me, that's like way less important than what you're actually seeing. Like I can't go to a restaurant until May 2nd, that's economy, right? There. That's the economy. That's not the market. Totally. There's this arrogance in our culture that it's just up and to the right forever. Yeah, I think that's right. And yeah, I think, I mean, we haven't really seen, I guess we're just starting to see the real economy impacts. I want to say open table bookings are year over year down like 80% as of today. You know, anyone working in events, hospitality, travel, tourism, all these sorts of industries 
are going to be be hit really hard. And I think it's very interesting. I mean, it's just interesting for me to watch. I've been basically glued to Twitter. I've been, you know, I've watched three press conferences in the last week. I don't think I've watched a press conference in the preceding decade. <laughs> but it's just like there, there's something happening here. It's like, you know, I think the U.S. Treasury Secretary got on. He's like, maybe we're going to send every American in the country a thousand dollars to like try and keep things going, and we're going to, you know, Crazy. we could put fifty billion dollars of SBA disaster loans out there, and you know. Again, you know, to your point, some of that people are able to do that because of the, the strength of the U.S. dollar. But, you know, how does that all play out? Like, again, I just come back to this idea of how wide the dispersion is. You know, I just uh, it's very hard to, to sort of predict. I think there's just a huge range of outcomes. Before we get to uh, I'd love to walk through a list of prospective thought experiments or actions that people can take in response to this. Is there any more historical context you want to give or any tidbits you want to drop or things to watch out for? Yeah, I think maybe the other thing just on sort of like the the economic front and, and one of the ways I'm thinking about this is kind of the big shift over the last 20 or 30 years is we moved to this sort of just-in-time production system where globalized and just-in-time, right? So like if you look at, you know, how the, the iPhone is built, right? You have a huge number of components coming from many different places in the world using many different raw materials and they've all got to show up to the same factory at the same time to be assembled and put together and and shipped into a final good. And I guess the way I kind of think about it is that just in time production is basically a form of of operational leverage, right? When things are going good, it, it increases the efficiency, you know, lets you hold less in inventory and kind of move things through. But, you know, as with other types of leverage, when things go bad, you have this kind of nonlinear downside. And I don't think we've like really seen that play out so far, you know, so it's like a super simple example, you know, you have the the container ship that leaves the US for China today and it gets there and you know, leaves Long Beach and it gets to Shenzhen in, in 30 days and it's supposed to come back in 30 days and it never comes back. We don't really see the impact of that for, you know, two or three months, right? Like we don't see all the things that are going to be out of stock in a month or two months or three months. Like we're still sort of burning through I think for the most part, you know, existing inventory in the system. And so I think, I don't know how many cracks, I don't know how severe they're going to be, anything, but there will be some cracks in some places in terms of just this, this massively efficient, but kind of fragile to some extent, just in time, globalized supply chain. That's going to be very interesting. I've never lived through a gas run, Taylor. The last one happened before I was born, but that would be an interesting one as well. Because when you're out of fuel, it gets real. Yeah. <laughs> Because you're thinking about it, especially when you're living van life, you think, I can basically perform all of the actions required to sustain a modern individual life so long as I have fuel. Because I can create electricity from fuel. I can create clean water. I can locomote to get different resources and relocate. But if I don't get the fuel, be in tough shape. And our communities would be in tough shape too. One of the Tell me if you think I'm off base about this little vignette. I think this leverage that America has had since World War II has influenced to a great deal the way we think about money, ourselves, our identities, but also how we build our communities. Like you take a typical neighborhood in Spain, you got the guy on the corner, like owns the real estate, maybe lives in the apartment above the bar where he sells ham and cheese sandwiches and beers downstairs. And say like the Spanish government shuts them down for three or four months and says, you cannot run this ham and cheese shop. You got to go, you know, quarantine. Well, you know, that guy goes in quarantines, like does some discreet picnics with the family or whatever. And then maybe six months later decides to do something different than ham and cheese or whatever. But in America, 
you got like Chick-fil-A instead. And a Chick-fil-A is run by a franchisee who runs a very marginal business who hasn't paid back the company yet. You know, by employees who are driving 20 miles to get there who have car loans that depend on that. On a street that no one can access except via said 20-mile car ride or 10-mile. It just feels that there's something like fundamentally more fragile about the way we've built our society as opposed to when you compare it to many older ones. To go back to the Taleb point, what he has, he has an idea of the Lindy effect that like the longer something has survived, the longer it's likelier to survive. So like what the, from an, like the urban planning of the United States is, is relatively novel, right? Like the strip mall and the suburban sprawl. It's not that time tested, you know, that European city layout that, you know, Barcelona or Lisbon or that's been around for a long time. So maybe there's something there. But yeah, I mean, I think in general, again, like, you know, not just in the stock market, but just the the experience of being a U.S. citizen in the, you know, over the last 80, 90 years, it's just like, you know, afforded tremendous privilege. If you're anxious about your business finances, a lot of us are. If you don't have confidence in your numbers and you're not sure if you're headed in the right direction, if things are going up or down, well, today's sponsor has an offer for you. Bean Ninjas is an online bookkeeping and financial education company that's been helping entrepreneurs achieve freedom through stress-free finances for almost five years. They were recently awarded Zero Bookkeeping Partner of the Year in 2019. Founder and CEO Merrill Johnson is a member of our community, the DC, and has been on this podcast several times. The Bean Ninjas are legit. They really understand the issues unique to running online businesses like we talk about here at the TMBA. Now, Bean Ninjas is offering to train you on how to effectively use Zero to manage your finances with their How to Do Your Bookkeeping in Zero online course. This course is basically a five-week mentorship where you can work closely with a financial coach and a small group of like-minded entrepreneurs. There's also a DIY option available. So here's their offer. Head on over to beanninjas.com slash TMBA to sign up and get 25% off the coupon code provided. This five-week mentorship program is usually $3.99, but today, by using that special link from the TMBA, it's available for $2.99. If you're someone who gets overwhelmed with not knowing what's going on money-wise with your business, be sure to head on over to beanninjas.com slash TMBA. Taylor, I'd like to uh, commend you for stepping up and being a leader during this time. You really have to put your neck on the line. I'm hoping I can inspire you to do just a little bit more here. If you could just talk about some potential behaviors or thought experiments we could all consider in order to more wisely navigate the challenges that lay ahead. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the thing I'm I'm trying to impress upon people right now from sort of a health and public safety, I think if you look at what happened in China, I think it's very hard to get good information on China, but they had an extremely aggressive crackdown in which, you know, basically I think something like 850 million people, something like, you know, almost triple the, the entire population of the United States was, you know, some people welded into their apartment buildings uh, and shut down. And even with all that, Hubei and Wuhan, which is, you know, it's a 10 million person city. This is like a big city. This is not some like, you know, third world, whatever. Like this is a real metropolitan city just was completely overwhelmed. You know, the the case fatality rate of people to contract the disease there was something like six or seven percent. 
just because the the medical system was overwhelmed. So I think, you know, especially in the in the short term, in in the next few weeks, like just doing everything possible, like, you know, don't go to restaurants, don't go to bars, you know, get outside and go for a walk and stay away from people. I don't have any problem with anyone taking any risk that they want to take for themselves. But I think with this, with this incidence with the coronavirus, it's very clear that a large part of how people are dying is that, you know, younger, healthier, asymptomatic people are contracting the virus and either not showing symptoms or showing mild symptoms. And they're, uh, and I mean, the way in South Korea it spread, I think there was at, at like a, I think someone took communion that was like not feeling good and they gave it to 500 people because they all took the same, or I don't know, maybe it was communion or it was some sort of religious service. And so I think just stressing people, I think there is, there is an ethical and there is a moral component here in terms of our, our behavior and for people that are people that are older, people that are immunocompromised, you know, people that have complicating health conditions. You know, my, my parents have a history of heart disease. If you have heart disease, the, the case fatality rate, you know, if you had heart disease over 70, the case fatality rate is something like 20%, you know, which is insanely high. And so I think just everyone should keep that in mind in terms of, of their behaviors and their actions. Let's talk about business owners, Taylor. You mentioned that uh, nobody ever regrets making fast and decisive adjustments. My kind of shift in focus over the last few days is, I think, at this point, it seems like people are, for the most part, taking the the health side of things seriously. Cities are shutting down. Uh, I'm in Austin, Texas. They just announced they're closing all the bars and restaurants. And I think, as you know, we talked about earlier and you mentioned, like the, the real economy impact of this hasn't really shown up. I started business owners that I work with and people I talk to kind of e-commerce companies in particular, started seeing this show up kind of late last week, March 11th, March 12th, where you know, sales were just dropping pretty significantly for, for product categories. For small businesses in particular, you know, most of them are in a pretty fragile situation. You know, most of them don't have a ton of cash on their balance sheets. They don't have access to like a huge line of credit that they can go tap to get through things. And so I think you know, the reality of that is that if you're in that situation, you, you have to be fairly fast and fairly aggressive in terms of the the actions you're taking. And I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, open table reservations are down something like 95% year over year in Seattle, which is kind of the epicenter. Uber indicated that I think their rides are down 70% in Seattle. You know, a lot of hotels have already started laying people off. Airlines are going to have the worst year ever in the history of the industry, and they're already sort of talking about bailouts. And so, you know, there are companies which serve those people, and like those companies are going to get hit, and there's companies which serve those companies, and those people are going to hit. So I think this is a systemic thing. Some people will be more or less insulated uh, from it, but I think there's going to be sort of very few companies that are, are going to be fully insulated. And so putting things in place faster, you know, knowing you can always sort of like dial things back up if, if things recover more quickly than we expect, I think is, is more prudent than, than waiting too late. Ian and I will be touching on a lot of these entrepreneurial things. One of the ones that jumped out that you listed on our notes here that entrepreneurs should take a look at is if your business was already faltering, consider super strongly just shutting it down. This jumped off the page at me, Taylor, because it was is something that I wrote down similarly. And I'm wondering how you arrived at this piece of advice. Obviously, you know, we all we all have emotional attachments to our business. Uh, you know, myself obviously 
included and so I've, you know, I've met many entrepreneurs that you know have said to some effect like oh yeah I kept sinking money into this thing thinking it was going to turn around for two years and like really I was just pouring good money out of bad so you know it's going to depend on each business and, and each situation but you know if things aren't like going that well already and you don't have a bunch of cash on the balance sheet and you're in some industry that's even even moderately affected by this like it's probably not going to get better in the next six weeks yeah and so you know just sinking more money into that or trying to to keep it alive isn't the most prudent thing at this point just to add a point on it like not even just faltering businesses but something like a marginal business where you need a lot of apparatus in order to produce a relatively thin profit line that's the kind of business that like it's almost like it needs the perfect condition to exist and that condition was the US marketplace the last 5 years now's a great chance to like take your marginal profits and figure out something more interesting to do going forward rather than you know a lot of people might want to be a martyr and say if if especially if that apparatus was staff and what you want to do is like say cash flow the staff for the next six months to get through it i don't know like i would consider strongly banking that cash and figuring out something productive to do some of the other things i listed down here like you know cutting back on any sort of experimental marketing advertising like i think that's the first thing that that immediately gets slashed any like alternative capital sources, there, there's some talk of the SBA, the Small Business Administration in the US. I think they've already authorized about a billion in additional loans. And there's talk of offering another 50 or 100 billion. So if, if you're in the US and you have a business that's been around for a few years and you qualify that, I think that's definitely worth, worth looking into. You do have to sign a personal guarantee for that, as far as I know. So again, like if the business is already not doing that good, taking out a bunch of debt and signing a personal guarantee on it, probably, you know, is not going to put you in a good spot. Sure. Don't do that. Also, one of the points you had here, which I think is fantastic, is get on the horn and negotiate with every vendor that you have right now. Yeah. I mean, I talked to a client today that had credit cards today and he just called Chase and Amex and said like, hey, like cash flow just, you know, my cash flow just got hammered in the last seven days. It's going to wipe out all my cash. So I have to pay these things off. And so they extend it. So yeah, I mean, any, any major vendors, you know, same if you're an e-commerce company and you have manufacturer, like, can you get better terms for the next six months? Call your landlord if you have an office or a warehouse or something like the, you know, the landlord is going to be, they don't want to have to kick you out. You know, can you get a 50% discount for the next six months and pay it back in 24 months or something? Anything like that. Because again, like, you know, all these people, like if you go out of business, it's going to hurt them as well. And so they're, they're going to want to try and, and make something work. If you've gotten this far, it probably won't surprise you that Taylor has taken a really deep interest in black swan events and market behavior. And he's using, he's applying that knowledge in his new initiative called Mutiny Investments. So I think probably actually the article I mentioned earlier that I think I published in late February called The Dragon Portfolio, but it's a summary of some research looking at what kind of portfolio would have done well over the last hundred years. So if you go, you know, talk to your financial advisor or you look at a lot of like, you know, I'd say sort of like common investment advice, what we know about markets is that, you know, markets go through different regimes and those regimes can last, you know, 20 or 30 years. So something that's worked for 20 or 30 years, you know, isn't necessarily going to work forward. And if we, if we wind back to early 1980s and you're like, oh, I'm going to go buy 
U.S. Treasury bonds when they've just been hammered over the last 15 years. I'm sure you're like, you're an idiot. That's a horrible investment. But, you know, the period from 1983, I think U.S. Treasury bonds were at 19%. And as of this morning or yesterday morning, they're at 0%. And so, you know, as the interest rate has gone down, the, the price has gone up and and you would have done very well. So anyway, this paper was kind of looking over like, you know, what worked over the last 100 years and how does that look like? And the short answer is, you know, something that's a lot more diversified than what most investors have today. Stocks and bonds are maybe half of the portfolio or 40% of the portfolio. And then you have other options that do good in kind of sustained downturns, like a scenario like the, the Great Depression, or even, you know, from 1963 to 1983, the Dow Jones Industrial Index was flat. It finished that 20-year period at the same, uh, it started that 20-year period. I think, you know, to most people today, that's just like an unthinkable thing that like, you know, the S&P might never be back to where it is for the next 20 years. Like, I, I don't think anyone's really thought about what that situation would look like. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I have, I have no idea, but there, you know, there is historical precedent for those kinds of things happening. Does it make you mad? Because it makes me mad, Taylor, when these bloggers go online and uh, they tell people that it's no big deal. You should put every single last red cent into 500 companies that you don't know anybody that works in any of them. There's a big element of recency bias there, right? Like if you started doing that 30 years ago, like you crushed it. Good for you. Like that, you know, <laughs> that worked out really well. If you started doing that in like 1928 or 1963, like that worked out really badly for you. And so I, I think some of that's just like, like recency bias. And then I, I guess this is kind of you know, going back to the lead point. Like the thing that's always struck me about markets, that's not true for, for many other things is that they're, they're interlinked and the, the probabilities of one thing, you know, affect another thing, right? Like if you're, if you're writing hurricane insurance or, or fire insurance, you know, the fact that there's a fire in Miami doesn't increase the probability of there being a fire in Anchorage, right? Those are, those are two totally independent events. That's true for most things. That's true for like most of, you know, sort of our, our daily lives. But, you know, what happens in financial markets is that, that these things cascade, right? You know, we're just going to see this is going to show up, you know, first in the stock market, it's going to show up in the tourism industry, and it's going to cascade through the whole market. And so you had this very, you know, I just like this very complex, very interlinked, incredibly kind of sophisticated system on which, you know, we have at best 200 years of history. You know, how long has the notion of, of markets or stock markets been around? Like not that long. For me, as you know, the market is, is a sort of a tool, it's an abstraction, it's it's so hard to figure out exactly what it is, but one thing's clear to me, that hubris that individuals have that they can somehow live in up into the right life by basically doing nothing except one thing, clicking a button, exists at the market maker level too, that like, oh, we can live in this kind of market condition, or we can build this kind of asset, or we can do this kind of operation, and somehow it's just going to keep working, and no one's going to figure out that it doesn't work. I'm very skeptical. One one thing you said, uh, speaking of skepticism, Taylor, you said, if you are a biz owner, stacking cash, probably the most prudent thing to do. I'm kind of worried about stacking cash right now. I'm so glad I've done it. You know, I'm so glad that I've got a lot of dry powder right now. I'm wondering how dry can it be if I can't go to the bank and take it all out right now? Are you worried about 
a bank run or banks dissolving and the money going away, the government giving so many bailouts that they can't give you your FDIC payback? I mean, are you worried about U.S. dollars becoming irrelevant and everybody wants to buy RMB? What's the level of worry one might should have about uh, cash right now? My concern about cash, like I think what's, you know, and again, like this is just evolving so quickly, but my my hot take is like, you know, what we've seen over the last three weeks, you're like unemployment is still like very low. Like, again, we haven't seen this show up in the, the real economy. Interest rates have gone down to 0% in the last six days. You know, they're talking about, I think that $1.2 trillion fiscal stimulus plan was, was what I heard. So, you know, they're injecting a ton of money into an economy that by the economic numbers looks quite healthy. And, you know, it's not clear, you know, sort of how those policies are enforced and how that money comes in the system and, and all that gets very complex and, and has a lot of second follow on effects. But I think the, you know, the other thing that hasn't happened in the United States for a long time and, you know, not in the recent memories is, is, you know, higher levels of inflation, you know, in the period, you know, I think no one's kind of talking about the, the stagflationary era we saw in the, the 70s and 80s, where you had low levels of growth and, and high periods of inflation. And, you know, what is, what does that look like? Right? You know, if you, if you own a bond that, that earns 10%, but inflation is 10% a year, your, your real return is zero. Right. In 2008, people were talking about inflation, but I think that's, you know, that I'm seeing in the narrative right now. I think that that idea of inflation is probably the thing related to cash that it just isn't being talked about very much. Taylor Pearson, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Shout out to Taylor Pearson. He's on Twitter, at Taylor Pearson. Me, great follow, great friend of the show. Just shot him an email. I was like, dude, can you just pick up the phone today and can we record it? <laughs> and uh, it's like comforting talking with Taylor because he puts things in a historical context. He's measured about it. He's thoughtful. And to me, that is the ultimate comfort in like times of trial is like digging down and like staring down the truth. Like how bad is this? What are some things that people have done in the past? What are some things that we can do now? Yeah, a lot of times it uh, feels like, Dan, to me, that our fear is like rooted in uncertainty and like lack of information. And I think maybe Taylor's doing some self-soothing. I don't know. I haven't asked him this question, but, you know, <laughs> he's like pulling together all this information. And I think it puts definitely puts me at ease when I hear that and when I read that. And I think uh, maybe the same for Taylor. Well, it's also Taylor's job because now he's getting into a space where his job is to make accurate and sensible predictions about how one might behave in the face of uncertainty. And so one question I wanted to ask you, Dan, is why are so many entrepreneurs like Taylor, because I'm seeing this all over the place, like why are so many like, I'd say like unrelated industry entrepreneurs, like not medical experts, not pandemic experts, why are they so interested in things like this? Well, first off, it's because it's hard to get information from now that's becoming increasingly easier now there's a lot of pandemic experts you know in the past few weeks who have stepped up on twitter and you can follow them and that's been really amazing to see in the early days a lot of people that are experts are caught up in organizational 
bureaucracy. And so maybe they can express individual opinions or they have to, it wouldn't be responsible for them to do so. In other words, because for the amateur, there's nothing riding on it, right? And for the professional, there's a whole lot riding on it and there's commitments and responsibilities. So I think there's always been the argument for the amateur tinkerer, the person who's not part of the establishment to maybe look outside the box a little bit. And so, you know, it doesn't mean like one's necessarily better than the other. You got to take all the information you can get and synthesize. Well, one thing for me is I think that there's just uh, a lot more platforms to be able to express yourself. Like before it had to come through like one of three channels, you know, if you weren't privileged enough to be on those channels, like nobody heard from you, but now anybody can kind of have a voice on this. But I think my question specifically to you was like, why are entrepreneurs taking this problem on? I mean, we've got an enormous amount of skin in the game, both from the downside and the upside. I mean, this is the wave that we ride as entrepreneurs. It's binary for a lot of people that are in the nine to five. It's like, I either got a job or I don't have a job or I get a raise or I don't. It's very simple, but for for us, that's just not going to cut it. It's an existential question. I think that that's why you're seeing these sorts of things happen. And not only that, but, you know, virality, uh, systems at scale, exponential growth, globalization. These are all issues that are prime issues in our community. That's what I was hoping you would say, which is basically uh, a lot of these entrepreneurs are focused on making things go viral, understanding systems, acting with incomplete information. Like yeah. that's what entrepreneurs are good at. And so it's no surprise to me that a lot of entrepreneurs I know like Taylor are really digging into something like this and trying to distill the information. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. Emails Ian at tropicalmba.com, Dan at tropicalmba.com. And also check out our YouTubes over at uh, YouTube. Search for the Tropical MBA channel. We'll be doing live streams so long as we are locked down. We appreciate you being locked down with us today. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.